Welcome back to Reasoning Through the Bible. We're Glenn and Steve. We're in the midst of the book of Matthew, chapter 13. We're in the section called the Kingdom Parables. Jesus has started to teach one thing publicly in parables, and then he pulls his disciples aside and teaches them privately. He's had to do this because the Jewish leaders are actively trying to kill him, and they're looking for excuses. So he starts to teach in parables so that the people who are intentionally just trying to find something to murder him for don't have any ammo, and yet the people that are trying to follow him can find good spiritual truths in here. And so this session we will be in Matthew 13, starting in verse 31, and we're going to cover four parables here. There's the parable of the mustard seed, there's the parable of leaven in the dough, There's the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great value. And so this starts here, Steve, if you could read the one about the mustard seed. This is Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. In Jesus' parables, he uses similar symbolism throughout the parables. So what are the birds a symbol of? Evil people. Right. Evil people. And what he's saying here is that this kingdom, the plant, will indeed grow up and be large, but it grows so large as to where it has evil in it. Again, these are agricultural people, and if you're a farmer or an orchard grower, birds are your enemy because they come in and eat the crops or they eat the grapes that you're trying to grow. And so birds are enemies of agricultural people. And so he uses the same symbolism here, is that the kingdom is this small seed, and he's been using these symbolisms of, of seeds as being the Word of God. And when the Word of God grows and becomes a plant, then sometimes there's false people inside there. There's evil ones that live inside the church at times. Chapter 13, verse 4 and 19, the birds are evil ones who take away the word of God back in the the parable of the sower. So that's what he's saying here. This kingdom is going to have non-believers living in its branches. Right. I think that's fairly clear, Steve. Don't you agree? Yeah, and again, it holds true to my position that the kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God does not have evil people in it. The kingdom of God consists of saved people, believers. And so I I believe that all of these are consistent with that. And again, he's getting the people to change their mind in regards to what this messianic kingdom is. It's not something that they just simply have believed that it's going to be just for the Jewish restoration of Israel. It's going to be that, but it's also going to contain evil people still in it as well. And and we see that, and we talked about that the last session, that while Satan is bound at the beginning of it, at the very end of it, he's loosed to deceive the nations and the nations come out. So Again, it's a little bit of a paradigm shift that he's trying to get over to them, and we'll see that in these other parables as well. But the kingdom of heaven in general is the messianic kingdom, I think, consistently throughout all of Matthew. So I I would agree that 
there's going to be a mixture of true followers of Christ and false followers of Christ, both yeah. in the current church age and in the thousand-year millennium. Right. And so I think it applies in both places. So here's a, just a question, discussion question. Do non-Christians benefit from Christian values and Christian church in the world and Christians being in the world as a positive influence? Do non-Christians benefit from that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would yeah. think so. I mean, Christians add a stabilizing influence. We bring God's morality to the culture. I mean, God promised Abraham that the world would be blessed because of his descendants. Right. So I think this is clearly what's saying here is that the mustard seed is this small seed that grows, and it grows up into this large plant called the church or the kingdom, and in it, there's going to be evil existing. There's going to be evil living in the branches of the kingdom. And I think that's fairly clear what he's saying here. Yeah. Now, one little apologetic question that pops up here sometimes is he says here that the mustard seed, which is, is smaller than all other seeds. And there are some that have said, <laughs> well, wait a minute. There are yeah, some seeds yeah. smaller than a mustard seed. Yeah. And so he was talking about the seeds that they knew in right. their garden. Correct. And we use this all the time now with common phrasing, is that we, we say, oh, this is the biggest one. And we don't mean it's the biggest one anywhere Absolute in the world. We one. mean it's the biggest one that we're talking about right now. Right. Yeah. Or the smallest one, things like that. So yeah. the next one is the leaven and the dough, which I'll read. And it says, he spoke another parable to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. These things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So in the Bible, again, he uses the same symbolism. So what is leaven a symbol of throughout the scriptures? Uh, traditionally, leaven is, is spoken of as being sin. And of course, sin is missing the mark that God has for us. It's, it's evil. Everywhere where leaven is presented in the Bible, it's presented as false or evil. Yeah. It's presented as something that is not of God. Leaven was to be removed in the Passover ceremony. In the Passover, they were to remove all leaven from the house. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in Matthew 16, 6. Leaven is hypocrisy in Luke 12, 1. Paul compared leaven to self-glory, which is sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says to purge out the leaven in our lives, 1 Corinthians 5. So leaven is always used as something negative and sinful. Yeah, and leaven, another word for leaven, what probably more common what we refer for to today would be yeast. So those of us that don't bake bread, yeah. what happens when you mix up flour and water and then you put yeast or leaven inside it? What does it do? It spreads throughout the whole dough, and that's, that's the active ingredient that causes the dough to, to rise. And so it's something that's just a little bit that's put in with the great lump of dough that's made up of flour and, and eggs and other ingredients. But it's even though it's small at the very beginning, it causes this reaction for the dough to actually rise and become bigger. And that rising is actually a decomposition process. Yes. The yep. leaven starts to decompose just a little bit. 
Right. That's why it rises. It puts off a gas. puts off a gas. Correct. And it actually makes it the bread taste good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a little. Yeah. But what he's saying here is a little bit of evil. Yeah. We think. Oh, just a little bit of evil. That's going to taste good. Right. And what happens to the dough if you just leave it too long? It spoils. Right. And so that's what he's saying here is that if you have dough, and again, the Jews there would understand exactly what he's talking about because in the Passover ceremony, right. you had to remove all leaven from the house. They would go in all of their cupboards, if they had cupboards, but their storage areas, they would do a complete what we might refer to as a spring cleaning of taking everything out, sweeping everything out to make sure that there wasn't any leaven or yeast left in the house whatsoever. And to this day, good Jews that follow the Passover ceremony eat unleavened bread during the Passover time. Right. And so that's what he's talking about here is that this kingdom is like if we mix a little bit of evil in it, then the evil is going to spread. So again, just like the mustard seed and the mustard plant with the birds in it, you're going to have this mixture of good and evil together. So that's what we're saying, is that if we hide false teaching inside of us, or if we hide false teaching inside the church, or if we hide false teaching anywhere inside God's kingdom, it's going to grow until it fills the church. The gospel is not to be hidden, but rather proclaimed. I've met some people that thought that leaven here was the word of God that was supposed to go out into the world, but no, no. We don't hide the gospel. So the next one, Steve, is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Mm-hmm. And if we look at that, this is the hidden treasure, the treasure hidden in a field. It yeah. says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then the next one is similar to that, which is the, the pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what are these parables telling us? The treasure is the nation of Israel. It's hidden in a field, and and if we keep the imagery consistent, the field is what? The world. The world. The world. So uh, Jesus came, right, and he offered himself in regards to establishing this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven was at near at hand, right? They've rejected him. And so the nation of Israel is a treasure. It's something that's buried in the ground, okay? But yet he sells everything that he has to at a later point in time retrieve it. So again, it's consistent with the with the fact that the kingdom of heaven is going to is delayed. It's going to be at a later period of time, not at the particular point in time that he was there because he was he was rejected for it. And of course, it was going to be that way. And we see that he brings about salvation for the world from that as well. How we can say that that was a treasure is that we see it, it, it talked about many times in the in the Old Testament that Israel is referred to as, as a treasure. I think if we go over to verse 5, chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 5, it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Israel is, is referred to as God's possession, and, and so they're his treasure. So the treasure is Israel in the field, right. possibly God's elect. We could say it is, and so that's the treasure. It's it's the people that are in a good relationship with God that are hidden in the world, 
And in the verse here, it says that he goes and sells how much? All that he had. Yeah. How much did Jesus give for us? Every, he gave his life. Gave his life. Yeah. He, he, gave, he gave all he had, which was his life. These parables are telling about Jesus who bought us. Some people have gotten this kind of confused sometimes with these parables. And I think one of the reasons he talked in parables is, is so we could, the, at least the Pharisees would struggle with these things. But we don't buy salvation. Salvation is not bought. Salvation is given to us as a free gift. The only one who paid anything in the salvation transaction is Jesus, who paid for our sins. So when it says here, from he finds this treasure, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The landowner here is Jesus, God. He's the one that, that gave all he had for the treasure, which was God's elect, Israel, or the people of the kingdom. So we don't buy salvation. Jesus paid for our sins and paid for the right to redeem us. That's the other thing going on here is a is a redemption exercise. And what you pointed out, Steve, is very, very good. It's There's this delay part where he finds the treasure, but he hides it again mm-hmm. and then has to go and, and buy it back. And the pearl is similar to that. He finds this pearl of great value and went and sold all that he had and bought it. So next thing, Jesus goes back to his hometown and he speaks there. There's a passage here in Matthew 13, starting in verse 53, where he goes back to his hometown, and there's some interesting thing happens there, Steve. So if you could read that and go to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not with all of us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Question here. He goes back to his hometown. Is it sometimes harder to tell people you know about life with Jesus than it is about total strangers? And why is that? Because you have an intimate relationship with them. They have been around with you. You, It's like they know you, right? And they know you know they, them. They know us well, right? and we can't pretend to be something we're not. Right. Somebody that doesn't know you, they, they don't know all your secrets and all the Correct. things you've done in your life. Correct. Whereas people that are your loved ones or from your hometown, they know you and they know what you're like. And yeah. well, who, do you, who do you think you are? Think you're being religious. Right. And so I, I think that's part of what's going on here. In verse 55, they ask a question, is this not the carpenter's son? I think what they mean here when they say that is that, hey, isn't this the guy that grew up down the street? Right, right. And Joseph, nobody, nobody special. And Just, Joseph was a carpenter, right? And so I think what's going on here, I find this fascinating. Jesus grew up in that town. Right. And they knew him. Mm-hmm. And at this point, they're saying, hey, isn't this the carpenter's son, that kid that grew yeah. up down the street? Right. And how did he get these miraculous powers? So he was there, Bible tells us, 30 years right. before he opened his ministry. And the people didn't really notice him. Right. He had the supernatural ability for people not to pay attention to him. 
And all the time he was growing up, it wasn't his time to reveal himself. So they didn't notice him. And I, I think it was like a supernatural ability for at least for Jesus to not be noticed by people. He was just a common person that people wouldn't pay much attention to. It's clear that we get the indication here that he wasn't doing any miracles. He didn't do any little special things as he grew up or stuff like that. He didn't begin doing his miracles and stuff until he started his, his ministry. And we can also deduce that that's a, a true statement as well, in that when we see him starting to do miracles, all of a sudden big throngs of people and crowds start coming around because many of them are there because of the miracles. And so to me, it's kind of clear that he's growing up just as any other normal boy would grow up. Of course, he is God. And we we have him teaching when he's 12 years old back in the temple and things like that. But he's still there. He's just he's a normal boy growing up into manhood there. And it's after he starts his ministry that he starts doing miracles. So all the paintings from the Middle Ages had this gold halo over his head, <laughs> following him or following him around wherever he went. Yeah. He, he didn't have one of those. Yeah, no, no. Uh -uh. What I do think applies is that, and I think this is a little clue here in this passage where, mm. again, they didn't notice him right. for the first 30 years while he was growing up. Right. I think because he didn't want them to notice him. Yeah. But we see other little clues like this. There were times in the Gospels where the Jewish leaders thought he had blasphemed and picked up stones to stone him. Yeah. But he walked through their midst. Yeah. At one point, they grabbed him and took him out to the edge of town and was going to throw him off a cliff. Right. And the text says he walked away. Yeah. And so I think there he had the supernatural ability where people didn't notice him. Right. And I think this also applies after he resurrected on the road to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. Remember, he was walking along and talking to the two disciples, and they didn't notice who he was. Right. He blinded their eyes. Yeah. So there's a pattern there that even after he's resurrected, I don't think he did anything any more supernatural than he did before he was resurrected, simply because we have places like this and these other ones that we've just mentioned where he had the ability to walk into a crowded place and have nobody notice him. Right. And if you want to put yourself in that position, think about your neighborhood that you have and you have your children and they grow up with other children. And then here comes this 30, 31 year old person, right? That was grew up down the street and he does some miracles and he does some teaching and it's, well, wait a minute, where did he acquire all of this? Why it's, it's kind of, we never saw this in the first 30 years or while he lived here. What's happened? Why all of a sudden has, has this happened? And we see here that he left because of their unbelief. So even though he was doing miracles, which means attesting miracles of who he was, they couldn't get over that he was a native son, so to speak. And, and that he grew up there, and so there, therefore, whatever he was doing, he wasn't the Messiah or he wasn't the Savior, and that he was still just a normal human being. And if you want to carry that logic out, it would be that them themselves were attributing what he was doing to something else, but it, well, they weren't attributing it to being God. Verse 57 says they took offense at yeah. him. Well, yeah. Why would they take offense at him? I think it 
plays on some of the things you just said. Well, and we also saw that whenever he was uh, the demons and the Gadites, right? They, they took offense yeah. to him and ran him out of town. Yeah. I think part of it, too, is if you're speaking the word of God and you're setting the story straight, so to speak, the word of God is offensive to some people. I think part of it is because of, again, he was so familiar to them. Yeah. That now he comes in teaching with authority. Yeah. Saying objective truth teaching as if he's God because he was God. Right. And I think, who do you think you are? You're just you're just right. one of and, us, and now you yeah. think you're something special. I think a little bit of it is jealousy. Yeah. I think some of it is just the fact that he had grown in such popularity, and now they didn't grasp why is, why is this guy doing this. Right. So here's another question that comes out of this. They were around Jesus for a long time yeah. and didn't know him. Are there people today that are around Jesus but still don't really know him? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. I, I think there's that's... people that know about Jesus right. but don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. And, and that's really what belief and faith is, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 58, it says, He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Is there a connection between faith and miracles. And is it kind of a one-to-one automatic kind of a thing? I've I've heard Word of Faith teachers take this and say, see, he didn't do miracles because of their unbelief. Therefore, whether he does miracles today or not hinges on whether we believe. And I think you and I, Steve, would reject that. Right, Um, right. The the miracles that he was doing at the time were for a purpose. They, They were to attest who he was. And then at the end of his ministry and during his ministry, whenever he gave the power to his disciples, his inner circle, to do miracles, it was to attest that uh, of who he was. They were there for a purpose at that particular point in time. I think many, many of the ones that we see today, you know, again, we've talked about that. They've been exposed to charlatans and, and things that are really not miracles that are happening and when you really start digging into it, it's the person themselves that is being glorified, not God. I think what this is saying is it's not a cause and effect right? that their faith caused the miracles or their faith didn't cause the miracles. That, that's not what this is saying. Right. It's, I think what he's saying there is that Jesus was loving. These people were hating him. Right. And therefore, because they were rejecting him Mm -hmm. therefore he didn't do these signs this is late in his ministry he had been doing miraculous works forever right they even knew this they said so in verse 54 they they talked about him being able to do miracles and so they knew he had done miracles already the signs had been done and again nobody ever questioned whether he could do miracles Right. It's just that these people, again, were trying to accuse him. They were anti-Jesus. That, that's why it fell through. And just a few pa- other passages to support this idea that there is not a cause and effect relationship, one-to-one relationship between faith and healing, is Paul had faith and was not healed. Right. Philippians 2.27, Epaphroditus was sick almost to death before God healed him. And so God does miracles as he wills. 
not as we will. Right. But we need to trust him and expect him to do miracles. I think if we go to Jesus and say, I believe he can, I have faith in him that he will do what's best. Remember Lazarus and Mary and Martha? Jesus knew he was sick. Right. And waited until he died. Right. So that he could then go and do a greater miracle of resurrecting someone. So there are times when Jesus says, not now, I have something greater in store. And so he does it when he wills, not as we will. Yeah, and Paul actually gives, Paul says that he asked on three different occasions for his affliction, what he referred to as his thorn in the side to be taken away from him. And he received an answer from God that said, enough, stop asking. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. And Paul's explanation was was that the affliction was left to remain to keep him humble. And so, again, I don't think there'd be anybody, any Christian that would say Paul didn't have enough faith. I mean, he he was beaten several times, left for dead and everything else. I think he was stoned to death at one point. I think he actually died. That time was at Lystra, I believe. Yeah, they left him for dead, yeah. And they stone people. They don't almost stone you. Right, right. And so there were, I mean, go through that list he gives in Corinthians of all the things that happened. He, he, of of anybody, uh, Paul had faith. We mentioned it earlier in regards to to Mary and the family, but he's mentioned here that he has brothers and sisters. Mary is mother, and she has also had other children as well. His mother called Mary and his brothers, and it mentions them by name. We, we touched on this uh, at some point a couple of sessions ago at the end of the chapter where she's mentioned first. Right. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 13. And next time we'll get into the story of John the Baptist being beheaded and Herod. Very fascinating story about this King Herod who had great wealth but was troubled and John the Baptist, who had no wealth, but was in a right relationship with God. And so we'll learn about that next time on Reasoning Through the Bible.